0: Good evening ladies and gentlemen, Um, my name is Kimberly Hutchings and I'm currently the head of the Department of International Relations here at the LSE, so Fred was one of my very distinguished predecessors in that role. I'd like to welcome you all uh, on behalf of the International Relations Department and the school to this special event in which we'll be considering and appreciating Fred's legacy as a scholar and a teacher and as a public intellectual in the best and most generous sense it's great to see so many of you here in spite of the tube strike Uh, we do appreciate those of you who struggled with buses and all the rest of it Uh, and it's a particular delight to share this event uh, with fred's family and friends and colleagues as well as i'm sure many readers of his work and his students as well i'm very grateful to all of our speakers who have agreed to uh, make contributions here this evening Um, the sequence is in front of you in, in the brochure Uh, If there is some time at the end, then we will open it up for some contributions from the floor if anyone has anything that they would like to add that perhaps hasn't been covered by our our many speakers. Uh, But for now, I think we should begin, and I'm handing over first to Sir Howard Davis, the director of the LSE, who will speak on Fred Halliday and his relationship with the school.
1: Well, thanks, Kim, and um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Welcome to all of you to the LSE, and uh, particularly warm welcome to Fred's family who are with us uh, this evening. They organised an absolutely splendid and very moving event at the University of London um, just after Fred died, um, where they paid their own uh, tribute in a warm and also Uh, amusing way, and I think everybody who was at that event uh, was delighted to be present at it. Uh, But here we're talking um, about Fred the Professional, uh, although Fred the Person uh, cannot be disentangled from Fred the Professional. Uh, As it happens, um, Fred Halliday was one of the relatively few members of the LSE faculty whom I knew personally before I came here in 2000. And three, of course, I knew all of the faculty by reputation, having read most of their books. Um, But uh, Fred was one whom I knew personally. In fact, as it happens, I knew him largely uh, through my wife. Um, She was, at the time, a BBC journalist. Uh, In fact, she was editor of the World Tonight, the Radio 4 uh, 10 o'clock programme, which is one of the very few programmes on the BBC or any other channel which acknowledges that the world does not end uh, at the M25. And she used Fred on her program as often as possible, partly because uh, he was a good person to be counted on to say something outrageous, especially after 10 o'clock uh, in the evening, um, but also, uh, more importantly, because Fred knew the matters whereof he spoke and facts as many of you know, a vanishingly rare commodity on the airwaves, massively outnumbered by gobbets of received wisdom. And Fred was one of those commentators who could change the terms of the debate with some well-chosen facts and new arguments expressed in a way the great British people or the few dozen of them who listen to the world tonight um, could understand. And she was a huge fan of Fred's as a result. And so, of course, therefore, was I. Now when I started at the school, Fred was not as present as he had been or indeed was to come. He was in a recovery phase, but I soon discovered that a recovering Fred Halliday was a more active and engaged member of the faculty than many of his hale and hearty colleagues. Uh, I appreciate that uh, some elements of this may seem like backhanded observations about some of the uh, other members of the LSE faculty, but uh, on this evening they'll have to live with that. I found Fred to be an academic who was very strongly committed to the institution in very many ways and someone who illuminated many corners of academic life for me in a way which I found constantly helpful. He steered me through some of the minefields of international relations as a discipline, offering a persuasive way through heavily disputed territory dividing international relations theory from area studies. After listening to Fred for half an hour, one could be convinced that the two might happily coexist in the same institution, Uh, though I used to find after leaving him that I forgot just how he pulled off this intellectual sleight of hand. Uh, He was very constructive, too, on managing relationships with the school's alumni, which is an increasingly important job, certainly for the director of the school, but also... Uh, for the faculty more generally. And it's a huge tribute to his attention, to his students, both while they were here, but also subsequently, that I continue to come across people around the world who talk of Fred's teaching and, indeed, his continued personal communications with them well beyond their graduation as the highlight of their time at the school. One might expect that to be true of his PhD students, but it was true of others as well, people who had simply taken... A an undergraduate or a master's course from him. People from a huge variety of backgrounds found him and their interaction with him to have been a seminal part of their experience here. And many people who are now among the school's strongest supporters are clearly in that group because of the bond they formed with Fred while they were students. And partly as a result, but not only uh, for that reason, Fred was a gifted fundraiser for the school He understood instinctively that universities are in a competitive market for funding these days and was always on the lookout for deep pockets to pick. Uh, It was never too much trouble for him to go on a trip or attend a lunch or a dinner uh, with a potential supporter of the school. But at the same time, and I learnt a lot from him in this respect, he had a very strong sense of what a university could and should do for money and what it could not and should not and Fred was able to hold the line with those who wanted to get more out of the school than they planned to put in, and to ensure that any funding did not in any way compromise the school's academic integrity. The new Middle East Centre, which Fawaz, who will speak shortly, is directing, is undoubtedly benefiting from Fred's careful negotiations at the early stages of that project in an important sense his legacy will live on in that center which we would not have been able to get off the ground without his reputation without his personal engagement and indeed without his careful skill in negotiation now no one could possibly pretend that Fred was a saint or always entirely straightforward to deal with i now treasure some lengthy emails i received from him challenging school decisions or occasionally occasionally accusing me of thought crimes which I had not so far committed uh, but which possibly was on the verge of doing. Uh, At the time uh, the emails were received, perhaps treasure was not the first verb uh, that came into my mind, but it was always clear to me that Fred understood the nature of an academic institution more than most and was hugely committed to the LSE's integrity and success. Universities are complicated, and the relationship between individual academics and their institution is not always simple. There are some who like to be lone wolves and who downplay the influence of the context in which they operate. Fred could indeed be a lone wolf if he wanted, but he also saw the value of the pack and the territory in which it roamed. I shall always be grateful to him for that, and the school as an institution owes him a deep debt of gratitude. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Howard. And the next speaker is Professor Margot Light, who is Emeritus Professor of International Relations here at the LSE.
2: It's been enormously difficult to prepare this appreciation of Fred, not because I didn't appreciate him, I certainly did, As a colleague and as a dear friend indeed Fred with some encouragement from Michael Banks did more to shape or even to make my career than anyone else in my life so it isn't lack of appreciation that makes it difficult to deliver this talk I've appreciated Fred in this old theatre countless times in the past but he has been standing here and I've been sitting down there in the audience what's wrong is that I'm standing on the stage and he isn't here It's perhaps fitting that the first in the talks about Fred and international relations should relate to the Cold War. Fred already had a substantial publication list, but it was his book, The Making of the Second Cold War, that first brought him to the attention of the wider international relations community. It was published in 1983, before he had defended his thesis, and before he was appointed a temporary lecturer in international relations at the LSE. I don't know whether he was the first person to use the phrase Second Cold War, and it doesn't really matter because he certainly made the phrase his own. And legions of readers and students have gone on using the phrase and citing the making of the Second Cold War. Fred used the term to refer to the period of detente in the second half of the 1970s and the beginning of the 1980s when the conflict between the USSR and the West but primarily between the two superpowers, was caused not by events in Europe, but by the spread of socialism, or at least of socialist orientation, to the third world. Fred saw the causes of the Cold War as plural. It was primarily caused by the great contest between East and West, the rivalry between two social and political systems, two competing ideas about how individual societies and the world should be organized. But it was exacerbated, he accepted, by the nuclear arms race and abetted by divisions within the two blocs. It was, he stressed, an unequal contest. In military as well as in economic power, the United States was vastly stronger than uh, than the Soviet Union. It ended, he thought, because Soviet leaders lost the political will to continue prosecuting it. In the ideological conflict between the two systems, the Soviet bloc was defeated and the West won the Cold War. Fred's analysis of the Cold War, and particularly of its effects on the Third World, continued well after it had ended. He didn't confine himself to theory or to reading books in the library. He was legendary for uh, study in the field, in the countries concerned, and he also spoke to decision-makers. One product was a fascinating series of Uh, called Conversations with Cold Warriors, which he did for Radio 4's World Tonight, edited then, I think, by Anne Coach. Uh, It was broadcast in 1995, and the BBC published the full transcripts of his interviews with George Kennan, Robert McNamara, Henry Kissinger, Paul Nitze, and Robert Gates. Fred's questions show a remarkable grasp of the intricate details of Cold War events. All the interviews are interesting, but his question to Gates about his decision to continue arming the Afghan guerrillas in 1989 after the Soviet withdrawal and in in violation of the UN agreement, and I quote his question, Mr. Gates, in retrospect, do you think this was a wise policy? (laughs) remember this was 1995, is of course particularly prescient. This is by no means the only example of Fred's extraordinary prescience. In 1989, he suggested that one purpose of the Reagan Doctrine was to prepare for possible future active intervention in the Third third World by reducing domestic resistance to such intervention. In that year, too, he warned of the spread and growth of ethnic conflict, including in Europe. In the the interview with Gates in 1995, he warned that Islamic fundamentalism in Afghanistan and elsewhere was a greater threat to liberal values than anything else we faced then. Because Fred attributed blame to both sides for the Cold War, it was often alleged uh, particularly in those ideological times when explanation was often confused with justification that he was soft on the soviet union in fact he loved the russian language he liked russian literature he liked many but by no means all russians that he met he thought that the cold war and the rivalry between the usa and the soviet union gave third world leaders choices that could improve the situation in their countries But on the whole, I found him rather indifferent to the Soviet Union. He understood well before most other Western international relations specialists did, that the Soviet Union was a weak and flawed superpower. He understood this even better in the mid-1980s, when he gave a public platform at the LSE, their first public platform in in the United Kingdom, to a number of economists from Novosibirsk, the first of Gorbachev's new thinkers. Later, because of Fred's support for the first Gulf War and his intense dislike of the reflex anti-Americanism that became common in Europe, it was often alleged that he'd gone soft on the United States of America. Yet he published an excoriating critique of the Reagan doctrine. He was scathing about the structural adjustment programs imposed on developing countries and the monetarist policies imposed on post-socialist states and he was deeply critical of what he called, in his indefatigable way, the indefatigable ignorance of George W. Bush and the timidly inadequate conduct of Condoleezza Rice. In fact, I don't think Fred was soft on anywhere or anyone, least of all on himself, and it's among the many, many things I miss him for.
0: Thank you, Margot. Uh, the next speaker is Fawaz Gerges, the Director of the Middle East Centre and Professor of International Relations at the LSE.
3: Uh, good evening. Yeah, it's truly a, a very daunting task uh, to examine Fred's uh, Halliday's wide-ranging contribution to the study of the modern Middle East, and I know it's a cliché. Uh, I don't think we have 10 minutes, I don't think one can do it in 10 minutes or even 10 months for this particular matter. What I want to do tonight is I want to zero in on four conceptual uh, and empirical themes, uh, of course in a very anecdotal manner, and in order to highlight uh, Fred's conceptual thinking uh, on the modern Middle East. The first point I want to make tonight is that Uh, I would argue there existed a conceptual consistency uh, to Fred's thinking and writing uh, on the Middle East. A conceptual consistency that basically uh, was deeply anchored in rejecting what we call the uniqueness of the region. Fred Halliday did not believe that the Middle East is unique in any way. And of course, a fierce skepticism about concepts like culture and tradition. He never wavered, if I may use the term, uh, in his rationalist, universalist, and modernist uh, 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 that view that the greater Middle East, or what he called greater West Asia, is organically linked to global developments and the international system, uh, and that the social sciences and humanities hold the key to unlocking the secrets, the complexities, and the nuances of the region. Uh, Fred was one of the few scholars, uh, really one of the few scholars in the West who bridged the, the divide between the discipline of the social sciences, sciences and uh, area studies. And critically applied, not only bridge, critically applied insights, frameworks from the discipline, particularly historical sociology, uh, and Marxist analysis to the study uh, of the Middle East. I don't need to remind you, uh, as my colleague said, that Fred spent years, years doing research in Arabia, in Yemen, in Iran and other places uh, trying to understand the cultures and the societies uh, and the languages. Fred spoke not only Arabic, he mastered Arabic and Persian and Ottoman and other languages. You should see Fred debating uh, Abdel Bari Atwan, the editor of Quds al-Arabi on Al Jazeera and shouting back in Arabic at Abdel Bari because he understood Uh, basically the dynamics and the nuances of Arabic and the audience as well. This is not just an academic point, as you all know. Uh, Many of our students here, even at LSE today, do not, graduate students do not really speak foreign languages, do not really take the time to spend months, let, let alone years, in trying to master languages, cultures, cultures and societies, well let me step back and say many of my colleagues in the United States do not speak the languages on which the areas in which they work on. So this is this is really goes to the very heart of what distinguishes Fred Halliday from many of us who work on certain uh, regions uh, in the world. This leads me to my second point tonight. Uh, that is the question of the social basis of uh, uh, political change in the Middle East and, of course, the complex role of culture and tradition. Uh, in his seminal works, as you know, to my mind, as students of the modern Middle East, Arabia without uh, sultans and Iran dictatorship and development are really spectacular texts, remain uh, masterly texts. Uh, in the two works, he basically argued tenaciously and powerfully that uh, ultimately change would come to the Middle East ultimately change would come to the Middle East. And change would come from progressive forces, that is from uh, bottom-up social movements, working classes, uh, uh, socialist and Marxist forces, as opposed to traditionalist forces like Sayyid Qutb or Ayatollah Khomeini. He truly believed up to 1978, 1979, that neither culture nor tradition would play a critical part in how the Middle East, the modern Middle East uh, changes and that this particular change by progressive forces would sweep away all forms of dictatorship. That's a, one of the, the major pivotal arguments that basically Fred they subscribed uh, to. Um, of course, um, I mean, uh, most of my teachers, not just uh, Fred, uh, underestimated the intensity of social and political turmoil in the Middle East in the 1950s and 60s, and that how the failure and defeat of secular nationalist movement created a rapture, created a vacuum that was naturally filled by traditionalist, uh, mainly religiously based uh, movements, even though they're modernist, but traditionalist uh, forces. Uh, although I think Fred labored very hard throughout his life, in particular after 1978, 1979, to explain and understand the religiously based uh, movement Again, I'm going to use a word he he did not like, he never wavered from his belief uh, that Islamists Islamist and religiously based movements were regressive, are regressive, anti-modernists, and blindly dogmatic. Never. It doesn't matter whether they are mainstream religiously based movements, radical religiously based movements, or militant uh, religiously based uh, movement. And I would argue here that the Islamic revolution in Iran between 1978 and 1980 colored Fred's basically views on the role of Islam and Islamism and reinforced his views, his intellectual suspicions of all religiously based movements, both mainstream and radical. Uh, And I think, to be fair to Fred, Fred's uh, position stems from a simple philosophical logic. That is, basically, progressive ideas cannot be derived. Progressive ideas cannot be derived from dogmas that claim a religious uh, sanction. It's also, I think, correct to say that Fred's intellectual position derived from his commitment to universalism, rationalism, secularism, not just a philosophical abstract, philosophical uh, uh, plank. But unlike Western scholars who work on the Middle East in this particular sense, even though Fred uh, Halliday lumped all Islamist and religiously based movements in one particular brush, unlike other Western scholars, he contextualized, he contextualized the rise of religiously based movements with a broader, a broader global perspective, and of course uh, uh, within uh, forces, economic and social forces, not just a culturalist mindset. The reason why Muslims are basically migrating to Islamists, not because there is anything unique about Islam and Islamism, but there are forces which basically have allowed Islamism to rise and nourish in that part of the world. Uh, and here I, I came to come back to the question about what Fred, how the reason why uh, how Fred tried to labor very hard to understand the rise of Islamist forces in the Middle East uh, uh, in the 1970s. I think not only he, he, he rejected the whole idea, the culturalist paradigm, I think he, he took into account the role of the Cold War. Uh, I think one of the, uh, according to Fred, one of the major costs of winning uh, the Cold War was that the West, particularly the United States, has failed to rethink Uh, its assumptions about the conduct of international relations and about its foreign policies in the region itself. And in fact, he subjected, again, as my colleague said, he subjected American foreign policy and its cozy relations with religiously-based movements throughout the Cold War to very much critical scrutiny. And in fact, he he, he basically assigned a big chunk of the blame to American foreign policy, which is, in in his opinion, responsible for the creation of the terrorist threat as he said, use the words. Uh, This leads me to a final point, a third point about Fred's intellectual uh, integrity. Uh, As you all know, again, uh, this is a cliche, Uh, over the years, Fred made many friends and enemies, enemies and friends, Um, because he subjected all social phenomena, not just in the Middle East, but also in international relations and the international system to critical inquiry. Uh, one of the least tribalized, Fred Halliday, one of the least tribalized scholar in one of the most tribalized field in the social sciences and the humanities. Truly, Fred Halliday, regardless you agree or disagree, you're all surprised. When you listen, he basically surprises himself and also he he surprises his students and uh, listeners and readers uh, as well. Uh, And I think uh, while many of us who work on the Middle East, as you all know, the Middle East is a very complex and controversial uh, region to study in particular in the last 20, 30 years. Many of us basically feel at home uh, in our own fiefdoms, in our own uh, tribes. I would argue that Fred Halliday never belonged to any particular tribe, never belonged to any particular tribe, probably except the tribe of his favorite tribe in Yemen, uh, uh, Beni Etenweir. Uh, Bani Atanweer in Arabic, the tribe in Yemen, is descendants of the Enlightenment. That's really, if there was a tribe that Fred Haider belonged to, was the uh, uh, a tribe, his, his own tribe in Yemen, uh, uh, Bani Atanweer. I want to conclude on a personal note, and I'm sorry to use this, uh, to, to mention this. I had dinner with Fred on his last visit uh, in London in his flat in December 2009. And I went to see Fred. He spent a, a, almost an hour looking for some uh, cassettes. He basically recorded while doing research in Oman and Yemen, in Arabia. Almost an hour, the flat, you can imagine the books, thousands of books all over the place. Well, we found the the cassettes, we sat down, we listened, and for almost 90 minutes. Political songs by young men and women in Arabia, in Oman and Yemen, about liberation, about emancipation, about progress, political uh, songs peppered with Marxist and Leninist charts. Truly for one hour and a half, and Fred was singing with with a group in Yemen, this is Arabia, remember, (laughs) in the 1970s. And I I didn't know what Fred was, was, I mean, what was the point? I I was slow to (laughs) grasp. And, And then Fred said to me, he said to me, that was the spirit of Arabia while I was doing research. This is South Yemen. Uh, one of the most socialist and secular islands, probably in the third world. He said to me, that was the spirit of the times. That's why we believed that progressive forces would sweep away the system of reaction in Arabia and elsewhere. We underestimated tradition and culture not because we were naive, but we were witnesses to this particular moment. To me, that particular incident here, Fred Halliday, till his last days, dying days, intellectual integrity. He was trying to own his ideas and thoughts and about underestimating the role of culture and tradition in the study uh, of the Middle East. And to me, as a student of the Middle East, it's a precious quality, truly. It's a precious quality because many of us who work on the Middle East have forgotten what intellectual integrity means. Thank you.
0: And now we have uh, Michael Cox, who's going to speak on Fred Halliday and Ireland. I
4: don't know, draw the short straw. <laughs> <laughs> your straws. Uh, my straws, I know. Yeah. Hi, everybody. This will be a personal statement as much as it will be about Fred and my relationship with him. Fred, as you know, was uh, very much, and it has been shown here tonight, very much the the internationalist in terms of his political outlook. Uh, his travel schedule, (laughs) and, as has also been pointed out, his linguistic abilities. Uh, His written work uh, revealed this commitment from his earliest work on the Middle East and various third world revolutions of the 1970s. I remember Fred counting them. He came to 14. Um, Through to his studies on the Cold War, revolutions in Islam. Um, It's an obvious thing to say, but there was nothing parochial about Fred. Indeed, one of those who inspired him most was that quintessential internationalist, the Polish Marxist Isaac Deutscher, who came to Britain in 1939. And I think it was not a coincidence that uh, Fred's first book was, I think, uh, an edited volume, one of Deutscher's writings on the Cold War, which Margot spoke about. All the great contest, as both Deutscher and later Fred defined it. But Fred, as I discovered, uh, did have roots, uh, so to speak, uh, Partly in this country, to be sure, about which I think he was always ambivalent, uh, but perhaps more obviously in the country where he was born, in nineteen forty-six, in where he lived anyway, in the town of Dundalk in Ireland, in County Louth, described by the way I noticed none too flatteringly on Wikipedia as "quote an important stop along the Dublin railway." Belfast railway line being the last station on the Irish side of the border. I don't know if that summarizes Dundalk very well, but it gives you a kind of flavor. Dundalk was famous for many things, two of some relevance here tonight, apart from the fact that Fred happened to live there for many years. One is that for reasons I've never fully comprehended, it became the world distributional home of Fife's Bananas. Now, I mention this because Fred knew one of its directors, a family friend, and a very nice man to boot. Fred thought we might have a discussion with him about funding something big at the LSE. This duty followed over, guess where, Cooper's Restaurant. The lunch was fine, uh, very fine. Uh, but we were completely unsuccessful. In spite of the fact that I'd done two days' research on Fife's as a global business, Fred thought this might be helpful, but to no avail. But as Fred later pointed out, what in the hell would we have called anything after a donation from Fife's? The banana chair of IR. <laughs> the, uh, the second reason for Dundalk's fame is a slightly more political. A little bit of history now, but it does connect. During the War of Independence and then the Civil War, it became the base around Dundalk for what was called then the 4th Northern Division of the Irish Republican Army, led by a man very well known in Ireland at least called Frank Aitken. Aitken was a firm IRA man of what they say the old school and a fierce opponent of the hated... Treaty which Michael Collins had signed and which effectively divided Ireland in 1920 and 21. Aitken, of course, being an intransigent and a follower of De Valera, which later became Fianna Foyle, Aitken fought on against old comrades. He was arrested by the new Irish army in August 1922. He avoided the firing squad, many did not. He was later released, and like many a former gunman, as we've seen recently went on to become a major figure in the Fianna Foyle government, led by Eamon de Valera. Dev needed a man he could trust, and so he appointed Aitken Minister for External Affairs in the 1950s. Here comes the twist. Like many a military man, Aitken came to hate the weapons of war. He became a vociferous nuclear disarmer, and in 1968 was given the privilege of becoming the first signatory of the non-proliferation treaty signed in Moscow. Now, this last story about Aitken is one that brings us back, at least me, back to Fred and Ireland. Fred was a great admirer of local man Aitken, though not Aitken the IRA gunman, but Aitken the peacemaker. Indeed, we once talked about how this most dedicated of IRA commanders, and a very ruthless one, subsequently helped shape international public opinion and became the proud signatory of what many, including Fred, saw as possibly the most important treaty of of the Cold War. That is where the admiration ended, however. Fred never bought into romantic republicanism and what he termed the myths that all nationalists, in his opinion, everywhere tell about themselves and why it is that the degree of exploitation and mistreatment of their nation by foreign oppressors is, by definition, by far and away the worst ever known to man. Not only, according to Fred, was this bound to lead to a distorted, one-sided reading of the past, as it, indeed it did in Ireland, it could also be used to justify some very unpleasant political practices, rarely democratic and more often than not very bloody. I think the sceptical outlook towards nationalism, which Fred, I think, had throughout a large part of his life, uh, clearly informed his view of what happened in Northern Ireland from the late 1960s onwards. Like a good 68er, follow the great traditions of 68. Fred welcomed the early civil rights movement, which coincidentally, or not coincidentally, arose in 1968 in Northern Ireland. He welcomed it very much. It celebrated, in his view, universal values. Fred was never a relativist. It was internationalist, and also, importantly, it avoided the sectarianism that was never far from the surface in Northern Ireland. And by the same token, uh, we talked about this much later, uh, he despaired of what followed with the rise of the IRA and the emergence within republicanism of the Provisional IRA. He explained why uh, later, reflecting back on 1968. And I think it tells you a lot about Fred's reflections on Ireland and more general issues. He, he and I, I just quote from him here quickly. Only one polity, only one polity in Western Europe, he observed, was irrevocably, irrevocably altered by 1968. It wasn't France, it wasn't Italy, it wasn't Germany, and that was Northern Ireland, said Fred. Part of the United Kingdom dominated since the 1920s by the representatives of the province's Protestant majority, the Ulster Unionist Party. The rise of a civil rights movement demanding equal voting, residence, and employment rights for Catholics soon collided with the state's sectarian institutions and instincts. After serious intercommunal violence exploded in 1969 in Belfast and then in Derry, and the British Army was deployed to guarantee order leadership of the Catholic community tragically was seized, seized by the provisional IRA, a murderous and itself sectarian body that owed little to May 1968 and far less to non-violent civil rights movements in its American or Northern Ireland variants. And he continued, and I can remember this story very well, I well recall, continued Fred in this interview, in an interview in Dublin that he gave in 1971 with the then provisional leader, Rory O'Brady. An inquiry, and this is Fred asking Rory O'Brady, one of the most entrant of the Progress at the time, Fred asked him what you might call an internationalist question. He said, What's the, what do you think of the connections of uh, Rory O'Brady between uh, the, his national liberation movement in Ireland and that of its putative equivalents in Vietnam and Cuba? Only Fred could have asked that question. <laughs> his brisk reply was worthy in tone and content of the schoolmaster he was, says Fred, and I remember Fred saying it, so you'll have to forgive my Irish... Mr. Holiday, he said, in Ireland, we have no need of your Che Guevara's and your whole Chi <laughs> And Fred went on and concluded, uh, in here, the pattern of the three decades to come was being set, where militarised Catholic nationalism battled its enemy to a dead end over the bodies of hundreds of innocents. Its struggle finessed or cheered on, and here I come to something else in a minute by socialist fellow travellers who strained to see a trace of 1968 dreams in the carnage. Vintage Fred, I would suggest, including note a very strong side sweep en route at the British left and his penchant for cheering on other people's struggles from the comfort of North London and possibly also from the editorial offices of the New Left Review. Again, this was something we discussed when I was living in Northern Ireland teaching at Queen's Belfast, as I did, between 1972 and 1994 what did i think he asked of the idea of troops out then the creed occur of the british left over in what was sometimes called the mainland not much i replied why is that he said i said because this place northern ireland that is would turn into bosnia and what would you do he continued if the troops were to leave i was in no doubt about my answer i'd be on the next boat i quipped Apparently, you repeated this uh, several times over with others, with my approval, I hasten to add. On this, and as on many things Irish, we agreed, not that we were natural comrades. Fred thought I was a mad trot in those days. I thought he was a fellow traveller. Fred believed I'd got the Cold War wrong. I thought he had. I saw the United States and the USSR as two peas in a pod, a couple of gangsters carving up the world between them. He saw the USSR with all its faults as the only thing standing between the United States and world domination. You get the point. But if the Cold War divided us, as it did the left more generally, then I'm pleased to say that Ireland, even a divided Ireland, united us. Which brings me to my last Fred Irish story. Both of us were strong supporters of the peace process that began to unfold in the 1990s. Not because we liked Gerry Adams, or Mr McGuinness even less so, but because the peace was preferable to war. And anyway, there was now a chance of it happening at last after nearly 30 grim years. And happened in part, we both agreed, because of the end of the Cold War and the changing international environment. I can even recall the day personally in August 1994 when the IRA announced its first ceasefire. It was extraordinary. Not quite the Berlin Wall coming down or Mandela being released from prison, pretty damn special, even though it would take another four years for the Good Friday Agreement to be signed. Meanwhile, a couple of years later, I decided to leave Northern Ireland, having lived through the worst times, though I still feel privileged to have been present. Fred was most amused by this. Good God, man, he said. You lived through all of that and now you're leaving? I explained why. Oh, another job's come up in a great department of international politics in Aberystwyth. I needed a change. Even a boost professionally. Fred was having none of it. We all know why you're leaving, Cox. You couldn't hack the piece. <laughs> well, I could, and I did from afar, but it was a term of endearment that Fred, I know, used in many of the great talks he later gave on Northern Ireland about how his old friend had stuck it out through the troubles and and then left when the guns fell silent. Oddly enough, it made me feel rather good about myself, but then that is what Fred, a very great Irishman, was always good at, making people feel good and better about themselves. Thank you.
0: Justin Rosenberg is going to speak on Fred and his students at
5: the LSE. So, what was it like being a student of Fred's? Well, needless to say, it was unforgettable, sometimes a bit difficult, but overall a completely inspirational experience. And with a personality as charismatic as Fred's, it could hardly not be. But charisma can also be a deceiving and ultimately very empty thing, and I never came anywhere near to thinking that that was the case with Fred. So when Mick asked me if I would speak here tonight, I decided to use the opportunity to try and work out just what it was that made Fred so inspirational for us, his students, you know what the content of this charisma was. I sent out a general email to his former students asking them to send me their memories, what Fred meant to them as a teacher, and I want to say a big thank you, I know some of you are here, to all the people who wrote back to me, often in very moving ways, because these responses have really helped me to clarify what I think the content of Fred's charisma as a teacher was about. If I had to sum it up, I would say that it had three main aspects to it. And what these added up to, in combination, was something that really deserves to be called, I think, the international as a vocation. So let me say a bit about each of those three aspects. Well, the first, of course, was that Fred was himself, as one writer put it, an international man, par excellence. But just knowing him was like having a ringside seat on the international itself, in all its dimensions, from his public commentaries on its high politics, through his endless transnational contacts with activists and officials in numerous different countries, right down to his vast knowledge of the linguistic and cultural and, of course, gastronomic variety of the world. And that was inspirational. It made the international so rich and real, you almost felt you could touch it. One former PhD student wrote to me about having supervision with Fred during an international crisis. And the student at the time was writing a very abstract chapter about state theory and was feeling jaded and depressed about it, as one does, writing those chapters. (laughs) The supervision was interrupted three times by phone calls about the international crisis, each of which Fred conducted in a different language. As a result, they barely got to discuss the student's chapter. Nonetheless, the student went away at the end feeling much better about it (laughs) and I think I know exactly why I mean, just being in Fred's company was always enough to blow away any sense of the international being somehow remote or abstract Fred was of course very proud of his linguistic abilities and endlessly berated the rest of us for our lack of them but the students that he spoke to in their own languages for them it seems that his pride was not really the issue as one of them wrote to me For them, the issue was the respect that it showed for their identities in an otherwise ruthlessly Anglophone environment. It validated their difference. And looking through the emails that people sent me, I'm very struck by how important this was for so many of his foreign students and how many of them felt that Fred had a special relationship with their country and their cultural background in particular. So I think the first part of Fred's charisma as a teacher was this ability to dramatize the international by moving so easily among all its cultural particularisms. But a second aspect was an equally inspirational internationalism or universalism, and this aspect I think has been captured especially well in a forthcoming article by two of Fred's former students, Alex Collas and George Lawson. Fred's universalism, they say, was partly about a historical claim that the rise of capitalism had drawn all the different parts of the world into a common interconnected process of development and that this was what international relations as a discipline should be trying to analyze. It was partly a methodological claim that because these regions and cultures were now all part of the same process, we needed a unified intellectual method for analyzing them. We needed a a universal historical sociology or social science and, of course, it was partly a moral and political claim, an insistence that people everywhere had the same rights to struggle against tyranny and poverty. Well, of course, these claims led him into controversy. They made him dismissive of abstract theories that couldn't focus the central importance of capitalist world development. They made him scornful of anti-enlightenment epistemologies Which he thought essentialized cultural difference, the cultural difference that, in fact, he of all people was so good at recognizing and validating in different ways. And they made him increasingly hostile to leftist positions which abandoned a universalist commitment to human rights in the name of anti imperialism. But at the same time, because these claims all arose from the same internationalist vision, they also could give a massive inner consistency and integrity to his political judgments, even when you disagreed with them. Sometimes in the midst of these controversies, you just wanted to keep your head down and avoid the heavy artillery exploding all around you. But Fred wouldn't let you. I remember, I'll never forget, a meeting as a a research student, a meeting with him during the First Gulf War in 1991. Are you saying... Fred asked me and a friend of mine that had been discussing the war with him are you saying that I have been acting as the cheerleader for western imperialism? (laughs) Silence. (laughs) And then the friend of mine who was a lot braver than I was looked Fred in the eye and said well yes. (laughs) Another silence. Well, of course, we waited for the whole world to come crashing down on us. But it didn't happen. Because actually, Fred just wanted us to stick up for our position and make it clear. Obviously, he would rather that we agreed with him. But he didn't attack us as students for disagreeing. And that's something else that came out in many of the emails that I received. Fred didn't use his charisma to produce many clones of himself. In fact, one former student wrote to me that, I quote, his tolerance for the more loopy musings of master's students was quite remarkable. (laughs) And this leads me on to the third aspect which was the implications of Fred's practical and theoretical internationalism for his relationship to the academic discipline of international relations. Fred was of course very critical of IR, critical of what he saw as its ideological biases, its tendencies to Vapidity, obscurantism, presentism And of course its failure to achieve the standing That its subject matter deserved among the social sciences That I guess was the gist of his famous quip That history repeats itself First time as tragedy, second time as farce Third time as a fad in IR theory (laughs) But the thing was that this was a critique of international relations As a discipline in the name of the international itself the thing that he embodied in so many ways for his students and that I think is why it never led his students to wander out of international relations into other disciplines even though a lot of them like him had come to it from the outside. What it actually did was to create the intellectual openings for us to beat a critical path into international relations in the belief that there was something of extraordinary value to be rescued there and that too was really inspirational. I think as a student of Fred's, you had the feeling that you were part of a kind of intellectual insurgency that was trying to liberate this field from occupation by outside disciplinary powers that were repressing it and preventing it from fulfilling its potential. It was a matter of huge frustration, of course, to Fred that in that wider project, the the insurgency, that he himself had not produced the great book that Brought the whole thing together and crowned his academic career. And we regretted it too, though mostly I think for his sake, less so for ours. After all, we had Fred himself, the international man, the uncompromising internationalist, the insurgent intellectual who opened the bridgehead in international relations that the rest of us just scrambled onto. In the end, I think it's this combination of his qualities and achievements which is why being taught by Fred was such an unforgettable experience. It was this roundedness and many-sidedness of his internationalism that showed us what a great thing the international as a vocation could be. And I just hope that he knew deep down that for us, his students, it meant that knowing Fred and being taught by Fred was already worth much more than 100 great books.
0: and now our final speaker Professor Chris Hill uh, who's going to speak on Fred uh, more in the round as it were, an intellectual appreciation That's
6: an impossible (laughs) time By coincidence yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the death of John Vincent another Montague Burton professor close friend of mine major figure whose loss is still the keenly felt in the IR department and in the profession at large. It's therefore particularly poignant for me today to be here with the honour of being able to pay tribute to another very good friend and, of course, exceptional colleague in Fred Halliday. Fred and I were in the department for 21 years, a time which passed in a flash, and my brief today is to talk about his life in the department and his relations with his colleagues. Uh, Plenty of other people here and in the very moving memorial service, of course, have talked about his broader contribution to intellectual and political life. Fred's life in the department was only one part of that, Uh, an important one, but hardly the whole man. First of all, I'd like to pay my own personal tribute. I had the highest regard for Fred as an intellectual, as a colleague and as a human being. He was always kindness itself to me and extended support on a number of significant occasions in my own life. Despite the fact that we were both products of Oxford in the 1960s, Fred was three years ahead of me and shared broadly left-wing sympathies. I was only barely aware of his existence before he arrived at the school. This says more about my own roots in kind of AJP Taylor, Brand of English radicalism than about Fred himself, of course, had he been a leading figure in the kind of internationalism which Justin has talked about for a long time. And tonight, with the tube strike, I'm hoist with my own syndicalist petard, I think. I don't, don't, don't think Fred would have been very sympathetic to today's events. Anyway, within a short time, Fred had been interviewed for a chair. And like most other people around, I made the bad mistake of assuming that his shortlisting was more about the future, putting a marker down, than the present. When he was appointed to the chair, I have to admit my immediate reaction was one of shock and a sense of unfairness. Not for myself, as I wasn't in the frame for that kind of thing at the time, but more on behalf of other colleagues who'd been in the department for many years and for whom I also had great respect. It did, however, soon prove possible to have a full and frank conversation with Fred about all this, and when I use that phrase, it's not the normal diplomatic euphemism for a blazing row either. We had a perfectly civil but very clear conversation, which I always found possible with Fred about difficult issues. And indeed, he was highly sensitive to the situation in which he found himself, and to the feelings of his new colleagues. And as a result, I quickly realised that we were dealing with an unusual, indeed an absolutely exceptional person who had the capacity to have an enormous impact on the department for good. We developed a good personal relationship which was sustained over the decades to follow, uh, which I hope was was certainly enjoyable on my part and I think uh, on both sides. On the other hand, we were both fairly volatile personalities in different ways with the potential to fall out. Um, But in fact, there was only one occasion on which a serious difference emerged. I don't wish to underplay the substance of this, but it remains true that when it happened, Fred was, in his own words, in the bad place which cost him so much peace of mind in the first few years of this decade. Our difference of opinion was over the appearance of a book celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Department of International Relations history which he felt did not do his role in the Department of Justice, nor the sets of interests about which he cared uh, so much about. He was angry because it occurred, uh, again in his own words, on your watch. I wasn't, as it happens, convener at the time. It's a typical Fred phrase, that, actually. Um, But I'd taken responsibility for the uh, birthday celebrations, and indeed one of my most talented students had been a leading light in producing the book. Now, at least, I have an opportunity to make some public amends to Fred for this. I have never underestimated his importance in the history of the Department. And on reflection, I agree that the book does do him less than justice, although I think that's also true of quite a few other people uh, in the Department. And the student editors did deserve thanks and great credit as they rose, to, and indeed the other contributors to the book, because they rose to the emergency caused by the absence of the authorized history of the department, which we'd hoped would be ready for the anniversary and wasn't. Adam Roberts, who made a very well uh, crafted tribute to Fred at the memorial service last May, painted a picture of Fred as a person who'd perhaps been gradually socialised by his membership of the IR department into a position where he ended up not so far removed from that of the English school which is so readily associated with us all. There is indeed some truth in this, but in my view it's not the whole story. Fred himself accepted that the subject of international relations was virtually new to him when he was appointed, and he worked enormously hard to master its literature. Being the person he was, this did not take him very long. It led him to be a, to kind of uh, condensed, I think, three masters into about six months and came out with an effective distinction. Um, it led him actually to be very attached to the subject, as he was to the department as an institution, and of course to many individual colleagues to say nothing of the hundreds of students, not just research students, of course, whose development he paid and played a major part in. But Fred ultimately had too broad interests and too strong a commitment to sociological understandings of the world to be satisfied with a pure English school approach, even assuming that this indeed was the orthodoxy in recent decades in the department, which I don't think is quite the case. Yet he was consistent throughout his time in the department in placing great emphasis, as we've heard, both on on the international... Uh, as he thought all other other subjects should learn from us about this, but also on the importance uh, of the state, which we've heard a little less about, as a counterbalancing factor to more structural understandings of the world, whether materialist or ideational. And he saw the department as the institutional guarantor of these two interlinked perspectives, in my view, that is to say the international and the importance of the state. And yet, of course, it didn't take long for Fred to also to become critical of the parochial quality of much work in international relations, as it often came relatively late to ideas and currents which had been familiar elsewhere in the social sciences. And he was, of course, out of sympathy with the conservative bias of much English school analysis, given that he was committed to a progressive set of values with respect to the sufferings of ordinary people and the particular concerns of women, ethnic minorities, diasporas, to name only a few. Where he did admire the traditionalists, if one can uh, associate them with the English school, was in their respect for history, their ability to write clearly but with subtlety. In this, as as in so much, he and Susan Strange shared strong views, and in their philosophical, philosophical and normative preoccupations of the English school, He always preferred the direct approach, the ability, and had the ability to tackle the big human issues, having little time for scholasticism wherever it appeared, whether in the form of rational choice theory or postmodern self-indulgence, one of his favorite uh, uh, points of attack. So, in terms of his broad feelings towards the IR department, my judgment is that he was deeply attached to it for what it was and because of how it had fostered his own development. But he certainly didn't see it as a kind of home in which he would retreat behind closed doors. Of course, that wouldn't fed at all. It was a castle from which he would venture out to engage in enjoyable jousts with other academic champions, and indeed into the world of policy debate, which he continued to be so much involved in. It's time now to... Uh, turned to what Fred himself brought to the Department of International Relations rather than uh, how it helped him, although I think actually those two things have become blurred together already in the last few minutes, what I've been saying. I think Fred was really the first proper social scientist in the department, although I may uh, offend a few people by saying that. Not in the well-known current sense of emphasis on research methods, let alone following the dictates of Cohen, King and Verba, which all our research students have to learn by heart, but in terms of being comfortable in a number of different areas of social science and being familiar with the great works that have appeared in it. Indeed he would of course complain sometimes that IR had not produced great books to rank with the works of Weber, Keynes or Freud and was always going to be on the back foot in earning respect as a result outside its home patch. Yet I heard him on other occasions acknowledge that plenty in other social sciences would benefit from reading E.H. Carr, Raymond Aron or Kenneth Waltz at least manned the state and war not theory of international policy. Had he chosen to Fred could certainly have made a successful career in the departments of government or sociology and probably in quite a few others in the school as well although perhaps not my colleagues in international history will forgive me if I say perhaps not in international history given the long and slightly troubled period he had there as a PhD student. Of course he had plenty of qualities as a historian as well. But few of the rest of us, coming as we did mostly from history or straight IR backgrounds, had this kind of range. Because of the tremendous depth of his knowledge, the breadth of his reading, the sheer sharpness of his intellect, quite apart from his international contacts, Fred had the respect of many people outside the department, in the school but also outside the school. We had, for the first time, not simply a good scholar in our midst... Obviously, this had been true with people like Martin White in the past, but also somebody who carried personal, intellectual, and political weight and could never be taken for granted. If Fred entered the lists in any debate, he was always going to be a formidable adversary. He had the capacity to sway people and arguments. This was despite the disgraceful tendency to denigrate him on political grounds when he was first appointed. Such sniping soon died away as a result of what Fred was able to do in the context both of the department and the wider school, and it was a huge asset to us that we could no longer be patronised by those who saw us as, at worst, a slightly flaky collection of cod philosophers preoccupied with cricketing metaphors and talk of pond bottoms, as Charles Manning had been fond of doing, and at best, although Manning must be remembered as the first constructivist, of course, he was a a great man in his own way, and at best as writing the first draft of history before proper archival scholars got round to it. As Nicholas Sims has recently reminded us in his own reflections, as late as 1996, Ralph Darendorf was able to publish an otherwise excellent history of the school with hardly a mention of the IR department. But once, and that's mind you, that's after 13 years Fred had been in the department, that was a bad mistake actually. (laughs) But once Fred had become established and and his appointments had become uh, established in Houghton Street, the increasing reaction here and outside from non-IR people was, well if Halliday does IR then we better take it seriously. Perhaps it was true that events were moving in our direction in any case. And that, to adapt Churchill's famous phrase about the British in wartime, the nation had the lion's heart, I had the luck to give the roar, Fred simply gave us our roar. But actually, I think Fred was himself a lion. He was the defender of the pride whom we needed to lift our status and our activity onto a more confident plane. It was the combination of intellect, drive, and charisma which set him apart. It must also be admitted that Fred, and I think I can say this, that Fred was, in publishing terms, the most prolific of all the Montague-Burton professors, with the possible exception of the current incumbent, uh, who hasn't finished yet. But but Fred's four four single-authored books for REE 2001 was a staggering performance, albeit one which took a personal toll. As a colleague, Fred was kind and concerned with individuals who had problems, whatever their differences from him, of approach and temperament. On the other hand, he did not shy away from difficult decisions and was a firm believer in the necessity of clear leadership. He made no secret of his view that it was both his right as a senior figure and intrinsically desirable to build up a group of colleagues who shared the same bro- broad approach to IR. If there was never quite a Halliday school within the department, he was certainly able to spot young talent and to promote those who shared his outlook, or at least some of them. Justin Rosenberg, Katrina Dalacora, and George Lawson are prominent examples of whom he was very proud Fred's influence was also felt through the remarkable number of PhD students he supervised. I don't think Justin did give a number, but I'm told that it's certainly over 50, which is absolutely astonishing. It's a tribute not only to the way he was able to inspire the young, but also his phenomenal dedication and work rate. For those of us who've ever supervised PhDs know how, how time-consuming it can be. It would not be fair to say that Fred ran the department when convener on the basis of democratic centralism, although that phrase does sometimes come to mind but he squared the circle between consultation and decisiveness, partly through working well with his valued administrative colleagues and partly through talking personally to academic staff when facing difficult decisions and grand strategy. This was especially true of the senior members. After all, if agreement could be reached among the readers and professors, of whom the number steadily grew uh, under Fred's influence over the years, this was likely to be decisive in a wider departmental meeting. It also ensured, of course, that Fred, in turn, when he was no longer a convener or running something, uh, would be consulted fully. It would have been a very foolish person indeed who didn't consult Fred on major issues, I think. On the other hand, he certainly didn't have the desire to ride roughshod over colleagues or to ignore their serious concerns. Indeed, the heterogeneous nature of the department, which the English school label doesn't uh, do credit to really, led him regularly to make concessions and to rethink his own positions, even if it sometimes led to significant personal disappointments. In other words, in my judgment, the element of democracy was rather more prevalent in Fred's style than that of centralism. Fred showed a remarkable degree of generosity towards colleagues in terms of furthering their careers. With his encouragement, people regularly went forward for promotion, and when he backed them, as often as not, they they achieved it. This was after many years in which deserving cases for the department had run aground at the crucial stage of the standing subcommittee of the Appointments Committee. I was a personal beneficiary of this generosity when Fred encouraged me to put myself forward for the Montague Burton chair after the devastating shock of John Vincent's death, only a year after John's arrival. But at the same time, Fred stood back himself Fred could easily have taken the name chair himself while using the vacant post to appoint someone in his area of interest at a more junior level, but he did not. It's difficult, of course, to separate out Fred's intellectual contribution to the department from his wider role in the school and the profession as a whole, but it is possible to measure some of the ways in which he strengthened us, as he he certainly did. And here I don't want to repeat what uh, other colleagues have said, so I'll I'll cut some of it short, but On the Middle East, obviously, his unparalleled ability to teach and advance research in this area, built on strengths which Philip Windsor and others had brought, uh, but gave us an extra dimension so that we could attract top-class research students with the reputation of being one of the best places in the world to study the international politics of the region. And I think there is a subtle difference between the international politics for region and area studies uh, director. Fred was... uh, uh, If you'll allow me... (laughs) In this, Fred was actually working in parallel and building on the achievements of Michael Yehuda and Michael Leifer, who had done so much to promote the study of the international politics uh, of uh, East and Southeast Asia and which Fred uh, uh, thought a great deal of. Secondly, Fred brought together his interests in social upheaval, in international politics, in ideas and ultimately even in foreign policy analysis in his work on revolutions and international politics. Fred was disappointed that his book on this subject never seemed to get the attention which it merited, particularly, if not unpredictably, in the United States. But it remains a splendid achievement which ought to shape thinking about the interplay between domestic and international politics. If he had not used Marx's term, the sixth great power, or perhaps even the word revolutions itself in the title, it might have seemed less alarming to those of a particular political disposition. But of course, Fred would have scorned such timidity, quite rightly." The book, apart from anything else, displays Fred's deep understanding and knowledge of modern history and his ability to relate historical data to ideas without falling into the all-too-common tendency to pick and choose examples off the shelf. Fred tended to work through the great events of history from the inside and was able to strike the balance between particularity and commonality in a rare way. Third... Perhaps the single most important addition from Fred's own point of view, although others would be able to uh, testify better to this, was the subject of gender and IR. Not that Fred saw it as a specialised or optional subject. For him, gender ran through the whole of politics, domestic or international, like the word Brighton in a stick of rock. Of course, the words Brighton and rock immediately bring Graham Greene to mind. Another worldly intellectual from a Catholic background, all too willing to write his own j'accuse when faced with injustice, and Fred, I think, wrote quite a few j'accuses in his time. Fred was completely straightforward about his support for introducing the study of gender to IR, never showing the slightest embarrassment about giving the leaders a man. He knew he was doing it neither to ingratiate himself with women nor for the sheer pleasure of being a pioneer. He struck me, at least, as a natural feminist, and indeed on the normative side, as someone who saw the interrogation of gender, gender attitudes as, important, as, as, as being as important for men as for women. In pedagogical and research terms, it's of course well known that Fred's initiative in la- launching gender as a dimension of IR in this department rippled outwards through Beza and other channels, encouraging many young scholars. This happened in parallel, as it happened, to the steady increase in the number of women studying IR, a phenomenon which was happening independently of Fred, but which he certainly gave a big helping hand to. And one of the most significant transformations in in my uh, career is the uh, the fact that it's now more or less equality. In fact, uh, possibly there are more young women doing PhDs in IR uh, than men, whereas when I started in the early 70s, it was almost entirely a male preserve. The last major dimension of Fred's contribution to the work of the IR department And there were many other things, of course, was his stress on the importance of peoples as well as states in international affairs, Uh, partly the transnational dimension, but also people at quite people. This was most evident in his enthusiasm for work on human rights, itself deriving from what he liked to see as the proselytizing for enlightenment values. The latter led him to oppose vigorously any hint of relativism or postmodern playfulness. For Fred, human rights and the fate of people suffering under oppression were far too important for playfulness. It was his understanding of the irrevocable command power of states on the one hand, and of the need not to abandon the helpless on the other, which fostered his consistent opposition to Saddam Hussein, which in turn led to that support for the U.S. in the first Gulf War, which cost him so many friends. This was a position in which he demonstrated his characteristic intellectual and personal courage. He was completely clear-sighted about the damage which most forms of regime, notably in the Middle East, are capable of inflicting on their own as well as on other peoples, and he was resolute in his opposition. At the same time, his political realism and his growing understanding of the state system as a key level of analysis led him to be skeptical of mere ideological posturing, whether of the standard anti-Israel variety or the patronizing semi-racist attitude towards Arab societies evident in too many quarters in the West. In this, he persistently gave the lie to those who, like Hedley Bull, in a typical half-serious insult, had cast him at the start of his academic career as a Marxist ratbag. As a teacher, Fred was virtually unparalleled. We all have our different styles and make our own distinctive contributions to the rich mix which is the teaching of IR in the school, especially in what became during the 80s and 90s a large and important department. But Fred still stood out. He was, as has been said, charismatic, dynamic, and well-organized. He was also, of course, an absolutely brilliant time manager, which enabled him to take on the heavy load in every aspect of his job. He understood the importance of timing, of humor, and the combination of carrot and stick needed to get uh, uh, recalcitrant PhD students to the finishing line. He spoke and wrote the English language beautifully, quite apart from his remarkable command of foreign languages, which left the rest of us open-mouthed or actually, more literally, with mouths firmly shut when he was chatting to foreign visitors in their own language. He could deconstruct a text with the best of them and add, where necessary, a touch of rebel-rousing oratory. He had none of the bullshit, cant or droning garrulity all too common in the lecture hall, at which point i better stop myself, I think. <laughs> and I am coming to the, coming to the end, <laughs> Professor Hutchins. Fred's effectiveness as both colleague and teacher was, in my view, partly through the interest in psychoanalysis which he used to to throw light on his own behaviour and and on that of others. Fred was not crudely reductionist, but at the same time, the Freudian tradition helped him to make sense of colleagues whose political positions alone he might have found baffling or indefensible. It meant that even at his most decisive and rambunctious, he was aware of the way in which all our behaviour is to some degree the product of private misery. And he was fond of quoting, of course, the famous uh, remark of, well, actually, mis- slightly typically misquoting. Fred, Fred turned a, a, a famous quote into a slightly pithier version, always. Freud actually said it was in, their profession was about transforming hysterical misery into common unhappiness. But I have no doubt that his effectiveness and decency as a colleague, which were so uh, vivid to us all, was also the product of his long partnership with Maxine Molineux. Even Fred could not have sustained the pace and intensity of his professional life without affection and wisdom at home, a point he several times made to me personally, while stressing his own good fortune in that respect. Fred was a one-off and a man who made an enormous contribution to everyone who worked and studied with him. In the history of the IR department, when it is rewritten for the 100th anniversary in 2027, I think, he will be a shining light one of the key figures in accounting for the department's quantum leap to its current position of strength. Despite the shenanigans over the 75th anniversary book, I think that most of the time Fred did realise how highly he was valued by the department as an institution, by his individual colleagues and by the many, many friends he'd made during his years, first here in Houghton Street and then in Clement House. It's a terrible shame that he's been robbed of more years in which to make even more significant contributions to our subject, and indeed to the substance of international politics where his wisdom and advice would be valuable. His brilliance and expertise are sorely missed, but he remains an unforgettable presence amongst us.
0: for that, uh, Chris, that really thoughtful and considered appreciation of Fred's work in the department, which I know would have meant a lot to, to colleagues who are here. And thanks very much for mentioning the gender yeah. side of Fred's work as well, which indirectly I would say is partly responsible for me being here as a head of an international relations department at the LSE. Um, I'd like to thank also all our other speakers um, for giving us such a rich and well-rounded view of Fred's work. In the university today, it's not often that you get the chance to step back from the everyday concerns of research and teaching and to reflect on what it means to be a scholar, to be part of a community for whom the true and the good ought to matter. Mm -hmm. And that was the kind of scholar that I think Fred was. And that's one reason why I think he will be with us in spirit as we go into battle on behalf of the social sciences and humanities in the UK over the next few years. I'd like to thank everybody for coming. Uh, We're going on to a reception now in the senior dining room. If you don't know the way, just follow the crowd. And we hope that you will all be able to join us there. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here to remember Fred.